Merry Christmas. Uh, and I have to tell you up front, this is not going to be the classic Christmas sermon like what I usually preach year after year. I must always go to the Gospels, to uh, Matthew or Luke or John to preach a, a Christmas sermon. We've been going through the book of Zephaniah, this short, obscure book from the Old Testament. We're going to stick with Zephaniah this morning. And obviously, Zephaniah does not tell the story of Jesus' birth the way you find it in the Gospels. In fact, Zephaniah does not even directly foretell the event the way other prophets do, like, say, Isaiah, who speaks of a virgin birth, or Micah, who tells us he will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Zephaniah does not do any of that. But what Zephaniah does do is tell us why Jesus came into the world. Zephaniah tells us what his coming accomplished and is still accomplishing. So Zephaniah has a Christmas message for us. Zephaniah can wish us a Merry Christmas, but we've got to do a little work to see it. Zephaniah shows us Jesus came into the world to change the world. Jesus came into the world to save the world. Zephaniah shows us the amazing height and width and depth of God's saving purposes. God's love for his creation. God's love for the nations. Zephaniah is one of what are called the 12 minor prophets. The 12 minor prophets actually form one book called the Book of the Twelve. Zephaniah is one of those so-called minor prophets. The minor prophets are those 12 shorter prophetic works that come at the end of our Old Testament. Zephaniah may be a minor prophet, but he has a major message. This may be a small book, but it makes big promises. And we're going to see that today. Zephaniah shows us what God is up to in history. What God is doing in history. God's purposes for the whole planet. That's Zephaniah's message. Now, to this point in the book, if you've been with us in previous weeks, Zephaniah has mainly been focused on judgment. Zephaniah has been talking about the judgment that will come with the day of the Lord. Why the nations deserve judgment, what that judgment on the nations will look like, how even his own nation of Judah deserves judgment, and what Judah will go through when the judgment of God falls upon her. Zephaniah says judgment is coming. Each people group, including God's own people, will have their day of the Lord. When the Lord arrives and passes judgment, when God's judgment comes upon them. And it's clear these are historical judgments. They might point to a future final judgment at the last day. But Zephaniah is talking about judgments that will fall on the nations in history. Now, Zephaniah is a pretty obscure book. Zephaniah is uh, very often ignored or dismissed as not really all that relevant for us. People think, oh, Zephaniah, you, you read through it, you think, oh, this is really a political book. Uh, it's mainly about how the nations that existed in the ancient world rebelled against God. Around 600 B.C., all these different nations are in rebellion against God. God's going to bring judgment against them. What could that mean for us today, especially since most of these nations don't even exist anymore? Nations like Assyria and Philistia and Cush. But actually, Zephaniah's message is very, very relevant. What Zephaniah does is he gives us a lens through which we can interpret and understand our world. He gives us a framework for interpreting the events of history as history unfolds. What's happening? What does it all mean? Zephaniah gives us 
a clue. He gives us insight into what God is doing in history. The reality is there are all kinds of analogies between Zephaniah's day and our own. In Zephaniah's day, the nations deserve judgment. In our day, nations deserve judgment too. Zephaniah talked about Assyria, Philistia, and Cush. Today we can talk about America, Russia, and China. The issues are the same. And not only that, but the people of God deserved judgment. In Zephaniah's day, the people of God had been unfaithful. You could say the church in our day is ripe for judgment as well. There are all kinds of analogies between Zephaniah's day and our own. And while Zephaniah is indeed a highly political prophecy, that's one thing that stands out is Zephaniah is making a a political evaluation of the nations. Zephaniah also shows us the political and the spiritual are inseparable. The political and the spiritual always go together. This is such an important point. Politics is downstream from culture, and culture is downstream from religion. And religion is really the heart of any people. Any people's religion will be manifested, of course, in all kinds of ways, but the source of everything is their religion. But if the source of a people's religion is corrupted, that means it's going to be manifested in their politics. And that's what Zephaniah is showing us. That's what he's evaluating. Politics is just the fruit that grows out of the root. And it could be good or it could be bad, depending on the root. Good or bad fruit could be born. So while Zephaniah's diagnostic of the nations is highly political, it can all be traced back to spiritual sources. And indeed, that's what Zephaniah does for us. Every culture is religious. A people's policies always end up reflecting their deepest beliefs. Every culture has a God. There is no neutrality. It is impossible for a religion, for a, for a culture to be truly religiously neutral. Just impossible. It's the myth of neutrality. It can't happen. And I can prove that to you pretty easily. Every culture has certain holidays, or holy days we might call them, uh, where it celebrates what it holds to be sacred. And that might be Christmas and Easter rightly understood as events in the life of Jesus that are being celebrated. Or it might be Pride Month. But a culture is going to celebrate something. It's going to celebrate whatever it holds dear. Here's another way every culture is religious. And you can see it. Every culture has blasphemy laws. We might call them hate speech laws or something like that. But every culture has its blasphemy laws. Every society is going to protect its God or God's. To see this, all you have to do, if you want to know who rules a society, all you have to do is ask, who am I not allowed to criticize? Who am I not allowed to criticize? Societies always protect their gods. In some societies, that might be the triune God of Scripture. In other societies, it might be Allah, the Muslim God. In still other societies, it might be the LGBTQ community. There's going to be somebody in every society who is protected in a special way. Further, every culture offers sacrifices to its gods. It might be hymns of praise to Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that when we confess our faith, it is a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. When we sing a hymn of praise or we can, when we confess our faith, that is a sacrifice of praise to the living God. That's a form of sacrifice. But think about this. What if a culture makes sex its God? If sex is its God, then children must be its sacrifice. If a culture makes sex its God, then children will be sacrificed, whether literally in abortion or metaphorically by being neglected and marginalized. But you can bank on it. Every society is built on some kind of sacrifice. 
Every culture has its heroes and villains. Every culture has its good guys and bad guys. Every culture has its heroes that it holds out as models to imitate. Saints, you might say, from history who are celebrated. So it might be Martin Luther or it might be George Floyd, but every culture is going to have its celebrated figures, and those figures reveal religious values. Those figures reveal the God of that culture. Now, I could keep going with examples of this sort, but you get the point. Religion is inescapable. Worship is inescapable. Legislated morality is inescapable. Every culture legislates morality. It's only a question of whose morality, the will of which God or gods will be obeyed. That's the question. That's the question. Every society is religious. Every public square is religious at its heart. Zephaniah shows us that throughout this book. He assumes this throughout his book. Now, he is a prophet of the true God, the God who made all things, the God who is Lord over heaven and earth. And so Zephaniah, as he says at the very beginning of this book, as he is speaking with the Lord's authority, he can speak to all nations. And that's what he does. He's sending out letters to various nations, evaluating them according to God's will for them, the will of the true God. He's a prophet of the true God, and so he gets to have the last word. His critique of the nations shows them how to repent, how to escape the coming judgment, what they need to do to return to the God who made them. Zephaniah shows us nations that exchange the worship of the true God for idols are doomed. Nations that exchange the plainly revealed truth about God for lies are headed for disaster. That's Zephaniah's message. Up to this point, Zephaniah has made that plain. But Zephaniah also shows us there is hope. There is hope for the nations. There is hope for the nations because God's ultimate aim, God's ultimate purpose is not destruction, it is reconstruction. God's ultimate aim is not to destroy the nations, but to save and transform the nations. God is determined to be the savior of the nations. He is determined to be recognized as king of the nations. And so in the midst of judgment, there is hope. And not just hope for life after death, say for individuals, and not just hope for a future life in the world to come after history is over. No, there is hope within history. Zephaniah shows us there is hope even for the here and now. There is hope for this World, There is hope for our lives, for our families, even for our nation, indeed for all nations. That's Zephaniah's message ultimately. As you come to the end of the book, you see this. Zephaniah shows us a God who, yes, will judge the nations that rebel against him. But he also shows us a God who redeems the nations, who converts the nations, who disciples the nations. He is a God who judges the world, but he does not give up on the world. Indeed, God loves the world. God loves the world, and he has a wonderful plan for the world. That's Zephaniah's message. Zephaniah's words up to this point in the book have laid the whole world to waste. But now, through the smoke and the rubble and the darkness and the cries of agony, hope emerges. Light shines. Cries of agony turn to songs of joy. This is Zephaniah's Merry Christmas message. There really is no message more fitting for Christmas, no message that our world more needs to hear than this one. This is Zephaniah's version of peace on earth and goodwill.
towards men. See, if Christmas means anything, it means God has sent his son to be the savior of the nations, to reconcile the whole world to God, to pour out abundant mercy and grace on sinners. Jesus came to make God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And Zephaniah shows us this. We have now reached the turning point in Zephaniah's prophecy here in chapter 3. So we'll just look at a couple things this morning, really in verses 8 and 9, perhaps on into 10 as well. But these verses are going to show us what God is doing. Uh, We'll look at verse 8, which describes for us the jealous love of God, which drives this saving plan forward for the nations. And then verse 9, the transforming love of God at work, changing the nations, transforming the nations into worshiping nations, transforming the nations, we could say, into Christian nations. So verse 8, the jealous love of God. Verse 9, the transforming love of God. Together, these verses show us God's plan for his creation, God's unfolding plan in history. Again, Zephaniah has been delivering a very detailed account of coming judgments on Judah and on the surrounding nations. When we pick up in verse 8, the Lord says, wait for me. It's interesting. Advent, of course, is a season of waiting They're waiting for the Lord's arrival. But when the Lord shows up, what will he do? When the day of the Lord arrives, what will he do? Well, the verse goes on to say he will seize the prey. He will gather nations and assemble kingdoms. Why will he do this? So he can pour out indignation and anger on them. Okay, this is more of what we've already seen from the prophet Zephaniah. This doesn't sound like good news so far. But get to the end of verse 8. Come to the end of verse 8, and what do you find? Because this is what really marks the turning point in the book. Zephaniah says, the Lord says through Zephaniah, In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now, we might think this is just one more way Zephaniah is describing the coming judgment when God will strike down the nations that have gone after idols. But actually, this really is the pivot. This is the pivotal moment in the book because look at what the next verse goes on to say. In the next verse, God says, I will change the people's speech to a pure speech. Now, we'll come to that in just a minute. But what it's saying is God will change the confession that the nations make. He's not going to change the language they speak, but he's going to change what they say. So they go from speaking lies about God to now speaking the truth about God, pure speech about God. He's going to change their religious confession. That's what's going to happen. But how is it going to happen? What's going to drive this happening in history? See, verse 9 is not God judging the nations any longer. It's God redeeming and converting and discipling the nations. God blessing the nations. Well, I think it's that jealous love that Zephaniah speaks of at the end of verse 8. That's what makes this happen. Zephaniah says God's jealous love will consume the earth. Zephaniah says God's jealousy is a fire. The Bible frequently speaks of God's jealousy, and it does often compare God's jealousy to the fire, the fire of God's jealousy. God is a jealous God. Jealousy, in fact, the jealousy of God is a major theme in the prophecy of Zephaniah. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, the prophet hinted at this coming, where he says the exact same thing. In, in, he says, in the fire of jealousy, in the fire of God's jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. There's God's jealous love. It's already poked through earlier in the prophecy. Now it does again 
and we get to see the consequences of it. What does it mean for God to be jealous? What is this fire of jealousy the prophet speaks of? And how does it lead God to change the nation's speech to a pure speech? Well, think about this. When we talk about jealousy in everyday conversation, what's the context most often? Most often, it is the context of a romantic relationship between a man and a woman. Most often, when we talk about jealousy, we are talking about a marriage, say, a husband being jealous for his wife or a wife being jealous for her husband. They're jealous for one another's affection and attention and loyalty and faithfulness. What does it mean to say a husband is jealous for his wife? It means he wants her faithfulness. He wants her loyalty. He wants her respect and her love. It means he loves her so much he will not tolerate a rival or anything that might come between them. A jealous spouse is a vigilant spouse. A jealous spouse is a spouse who works at guarding the marriage covenant, protecting the marriage covenant. And so it is with God and his people. Indeed, so it is with God and his creation. Zephaniah is saying here by describing God as a God of fiery jealousy. He's saying God is jealous for the love and affection of his people. He wants to be our God and our only God. God will not allow any idols to get between himself and his people. He loves his bride and he wants to protect his marital covenant with her at all costs. And he will destroy whatever threatens his relationship with his people. That is God's jealousy. And that's really what Zephaniah is speaking about here. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for the love of his bride, for the faithfulness of his people. God is jealous for the covenant he has made with his people. This kind of jealousy is not petty. Indeed, this kind of jealousy is the strongest possible expression of true love. It's the ultimate form of true love. Without jealousy, there is no love. This fiery, jealous love is the opposite of indifference. It's really an amazing thing to be loved this way. When somebody loves you with a jealous love and they want to protect their relationship with you and guard it from whatever might threaten that relationship, what is God's jealousy? God's jealousy is his passionate love for his people, his desire for the radical faithfulness of his people, his desire that the faithfulness of his people might match his own faithfulness and loyalty. God's jealousy means he loves us with an infinite intensity. God's love is infinite in its intensity. That is God's jealous love. And so the fire of his jealousy consumes all our rivals, all who would threaten his relationship with his people. This jealousy means God will consume the enemies of his people, those who would get in the way of his relationship with his people. The fiery, jealous love of God even goes one step further, you might say. This jealous love consumes all impurities, all imperfections in his bride. This jealous love consumes all the imperfections in his people. He is determined in his jealous love to make us holy as he is holy. He is determined to make us loyal even as he is loyal. God is determined to have a faithful bride. He is determined to be the redeemer of his creation. And this fiery jealousy, the consuming fire of his jealousy, will consume all the draws and all the impurities of our lives like a refiner's fire. That's what this jealous love is. 
It's a refinery that God puts his people through. So all the dross and all the perfections of our lives can be burned away. And so God can present us to himself as a glorious and radiant bride without any spot or wrinkle at the last day. That's what God and his jealous love wants. He wants his bride, his church to be sanctified and full of splendor without any spot or wrinkle. See, the fire of his jealousy that consumes the earth here really does have a double meaning in Zephaniah. It means he destroys all his rivals who would steal his bride away. But it also means he transforms his bride. He perfects his bride. So we will have a beautiful, radiant, and submissive bride in the end. The jealous love of God guarantees it. The jealous love of God produces this. And that's really what the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book is about. How the fiery, jealous love of God guarantees he will have a faithful bride. This jealous love does not just destroy rivals, it refines his own people. That's the point. Our God is a consuming fire. And yes, sometimes the flames of his love burn us. Sometimes his fiery love hurts us. The flames of his love can be painful. God puts us through fiery ordeals and trials. Why? In order to purify us and perfect us. That is his jealous love consuming all that mars or disfigures or stains our lives. His fiery jealousy for us, this fiery jealous love purifies our love for him. It makes us into the people he wants us to be. God's jealous love is possessive and protective. And I can tell you, it is really a wonderful thing to be on the inside of this kind of love, to be loved in this way, to be embraced by this kind of love and surrounded by this kind of love. It gives incredible security and safety. God's jealousy is our security. God's jealousy is our safety. God burns with a love for you and for me. It's a love that will not let us go our own way. God will go to any cost to make us his own and to keep us as his own treasured possession. And I can tell you, the strongest love imaginable between a husband and a wife is still only a faint shadow of the incredibly powerful covenant love that God has for his people. This transformative love, this jealous love. Now that's good news. That's good news to hear, that our God loves us in this way with a jealous love. That is good news. But it gets even better. In verse 9, the good news becomes great news because we see this jealous love is not just for one nation or a small group of people. It is ultimately for all peoples, all nations, all tongues and tribes. This is the revelation of God's saving purpose, God's wonderful plan for the human race. God's incredible love for his creation. The whole world is headed for the flames of God's fiery, jealous love. Why? Because God is determined to have a global people. A people drawn from all the peoples of the earth. A people drawn from all the nations of the earth. The jealous love of God will accomplish it. God has a zeal to accomplish this. Other prophets say for Zephaniah, it's the jealousy of God that will accomplish this. See, in Zephaniah, judgment is complete. Zephaniah announces a judgment that will fall on all the earth, on all nations. Remember how from the very beginning of the book, Zephaniah announces this judgment that is going to be comprehensive. 
fact, we, we, we saw a couple weeks ago how this judgment goes out north, south, east, west, in all directions from Jerusalem. Well, now Zephaniah tells us an equally complete salvation is coming. Judgment has laid the world to waste. Judgment has brought destruction. But now salvation will be, bring reconstruction. Salvation is going to be, bring blessing where there was curse. And the salvation is going to be just as comprehensive. This is what we sing about at Christmas. Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Zephaniah announced judgment. He announced curse on all nations. Now he's going to describe blessing and salvation for all nations as well. Verse 9 tells us how this works. What is God going to do? Well, he's going to change the speech of the people to a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. When this speaks of God changing the speech of the people, can you think of another story in the Bible where God changed the speech of the people? Kids, can you think of a story in the Bible where God changes the speech of the people? Yes, of course, we know. We read it this morning. The story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And you remember how that story goes. Humanity had refused to spread out and fill the earth as God had commanded. And so all of humanity had the same language and the same speech. Genesis 11.1 tells us. Now, it may sound like that's redundant. Same language, same speech. Actually, that's not the case. It's not redundant. These words for language and speech really mean two different things. If you actually unpack this and see how this language is used elsewhere in Scripture, it means two different things. On the one hand, it means they had the same religion. They made the same religious confession with their lips. That's one thing it means. And the other thing it means is they had the same culture, the same language. They spoke the same language, and they shared a common way of life. That's what it means. They are united together in a false religion. They are united together in rebellion. In those days, there was only one kind of paganism, only one kind of false religion. It's not like you had all these different denominations of paganism, like you would eventually. No, just one denomination of paganism, all pagans united together in rebellion against God, worshiping an idol. And so what do they do? They come together to build a tower. They're going to build a place of worship. They're going to build a temple. And they want to make a great name for themselves. This is their arrogance on display. They want their tower to reach to the heavens. It's as if they want to storm the very throne room of God and take over and become gods themselves. And so they all stay congregated in one place to concentrate their power. The Tower of Babel is a story about mankind united in idolatry, united in Rebellion. It is man versus God, man making himself into a rival against God, man exalting himself instead of exalting God, man seeking to make his own name great instead of making God's name great. That's the story. And they're going to build a tower to reach the heavens. They want to reach the heavens with their own strength and their own wisdom. And so what does God do? The text tells us in Genesis 11, God comes down to get a good look. They're building this tower to the heavens, and God has to come down just to get a good look at it. This is ironic mockery of their project. God is poking fun at them. Our God is in the heavens, and he laughs at the foolish rebellion of men. They're building a tower to the heavens. God has to come down to get a good look at it. God comes down from heaven, and he sees their tower. He sees their project. And what does he do in verse 6 of Genesis 11? The Lord makes a judgment. The people are one. 
The people are one with one confession. God says nothing they seek to do will be withheld from them. There is power in unity even for pagans. God says this, and so then in verse 7, God says he will confound their confession so that they will not be able to understand one another's languages and they'll be broken apart. They'll be divided. Because of this confusion God will bring upon them, they will have to scatter out over the face of the earth. And of course, that's what the word Babel means, confusion. God confuses their speech, he confuses their religion, he confuses their culture, and so they have to scatter, they have to fan out over the face of the earth. Of course, as we know from the table of nations in Genesis 10, many different nations come out of the judgment at Babel. Mankind was divided at the Tower of Babel. But the question here is this. Did God intend for humanity to stay divided forever? The divisions created at Babel, would they be permanent? Did God intend to give the nations over to idolatry forever? Does he intend to do something about that? See, there are really two things that come out of Babel. One is it does confirm the nations in their idolatry. It creates the nations, but it also confirms the nations in their idolatry. Will God leave the human race divided forever? Will God leave the nations in the hands of the idols forever? Zephaniah 3.9 is the answer to those questions. What will God do? God, in his sovereign grace, will change the hearts of the people so that their speech, what they confess with their lips, their religious confession will be made pure. That's what God says he will do. I will change the speech. I will change the religion of the people to a pure speech, to a pure religion. And so what will they do with their lips instead of calling on idols? They will call on the name of the Lord, Zephaniah says. They will call on the name of the Lord in faith. And what will the result of this be? The nations will be united. They will serve God with one accord, Zephaniah says. Or more literally, they will serve God shoulder to shoulder. Shoulder to shoulder could describe an army marching in lockstep, an army marching in formation. God's going to form the nations into his army. But shoulder to shoulder is also an architectural term that describes the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. Instead of building a false place of worship, a false temple like they were at Babel, God is going to form his people into a true temple. They'll be shoulder to shoulder. There'll be blocks, building blocks God uses in building this temple for himself. The Tower of Babel was the counterfeit. Here is the reality. But when, when does this happen? When do the words of the prophet Zephaniah come to pass? What is Zephaniah 3.9 describing? When God changes the speech of the people. Well, the most obvious answer to that question in the Bible is Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So this is thousands of years after Babel. It's 600 years after Zephaniah. It's 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, what happens? God gives to the people's pure speech and he makes out of the many nations one. He makes out of the many nations one new nation, one new people. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples, as the Holy Spirit is poured out, the disciples begin to speak the gospel in foreign languages. It is a speech miracle, the gift of tongues. People from different ethnicities are gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, 17 different ethnicities in all that he lists, and each one of them hears the gospel in his own language. It is a miracle. What is God doing? He's giving pure speech to the people. He's changing their speech to a pure 
speak. These tongues that had been used to praise idols will now be used to praise the living God. Now, some will say that Pentecost in Acts 2 is the reversal of Babel. God confounded the language of the people at Babel, so they were divided into different nations. Now they're being united together through this gift of tongues, so Babel's being reversed. Not quite. That's not quite right. Pentecost is not the reversal of Babel. It would be more accurate to say Pentecost is the sanctification of Babel. Pentecost sanctifies what happened at Babel. It sanctifies Babel. You could even say it fulfills Babel. After all, nations do not cease to exist after Pentecost. We still have nations. We don't all go back to speaking one language as they did at Babel before the judgment. Babel is not being undone. Rather, what happened at Babel is now being redeemed. We don't revert back to one ethnic group, one nation when language, it's not as if nations cease to exist. After Pentecost, we still have many cultures. But now all the different people groups of the world are being transformed into God's kingdom. People from every nation are calling upon the name of the Lord in their own language. People from every nation are being united and being made one in Christ, being formed into one holy nation, the church. They don't have to give up their earthly nationality to do that, but their earthly nationality gets transformed. Nations still exist, but the promise here is that they will be discipled nations. They will be made Christian nations. There are many nations with many from all of these different nations being joined together in one church. That's God's promise through Zephaniah. That is God's purpose. The perverse dream of Babel finds its true fulfillment in the church. This is God's global plan of salvation, his plan of salvation for the nations. Now hopefully you can see what this has to do with Christmas. Christmas and Pentecost are actually very closely connected. In fact, if you look at that text we read this morning from Galatians chapter 4, you can see how it connects the sending of the Son, that's Christmas, with the sending of the Spirit, that's Pentecost. The two go together, the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit. And what does God accomplish through the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit? He accomplishes Zephaniah 3.9. God will have a global people. Many nations united by a common confession. God will save the world. God will make the nations his own. This is what Christmas is all about. Christ came for the nations to be the savior of the nations. Christ was sent into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Christ came because God is a jealous God. And in his jealous love, he reclaims the nations and makes them his own. The people scattered at Babel are now being gathered together into the church in order to form a new humanity. Ethnically diverse, but spiritually united. That is God's purpose. One new people in Christ made out of the many nations of Babel. Confusion has given way to confession. And indeed, there are Christians from all over the world today gathering together to confess with pure speech that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh to celebrate his birth into the world, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. All over the world, that's happening. The glory of Christmas is this. The Christian faith is the one and only universal religion that can truly unite humanity. It is the one and only religion capable of covering the globe. 
The church is the true United Nations. The church is the true globalism. Only the gospel can unite and transform the world. This is the good news. That Christ came into the world to plant God's kingdom and that God's kingdom would spread out to the nations and transform the nations. And of course the nations will not have to give up what makes each nation unique. But rather each nation's uniqueness will be sanctified. And each nation will bring its own peculiar treasures into the kingdom of God. That's the vision. That's the vision of Zephaniah. That's the vision of Christmas. That's the Christian vision for the world. Nothing less will do. That's what it's all about. See, Zephaniah's prophecy is a promise, and it shows us what God is doing in the world. And really, it should fill us with hope. So many Christians are pessimistic. So many Christians take a pessimistic view of the future, long-term and short-term. Look, if you want to be a pessimist about the short-term, that's fine. But in the long run, we all must be filled with hope for the growth of the kingdom and the transformation of the nations, because that is God's purpose. We could say China and Russia and America and so many other nations deserve judgment today. Yes, true. But imagine if you can what a Christianized China would look like or a Christianized Russia or a Christianized America. The reality is that's what we sing about this time of year. What, is, what does Zephaniah want us to do? If nothing else, he wants us to believe the words we sing during Advent and Christmas. Zephaniah wants us to believe our Christmas hymns year-round. Listen to some of these words you've been singing over the last five weeks, if you've been at TPC. Words like these. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus came to be king over the whole world, to, to be the savior of the nations, to bring joy to the whole world. What about this, these lines that we have sung? How lovely shines the morning star, the nations see and hail afar. Or this, this is the savior of the world, the Gentiles promise light. The world, the Gentiles, will be drawn to this light that is Jesus. Or what about this? To hail the son of righteousness, the gathering nations come. He came to gather up the nations. Or what about this? Oh, sing a new song to the Lord, all earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. He saves each day, proclaim. His glory is to all nations shown. His deeds let all peoples know. All nations, all peoples. Or what about this? Glad tidings of great joy I bring to all the world. I gladly sing. This little child of lowly birth shall be the joy of all the earth. Welcome to earth. Thou noble guest, thou whom the sinful world is through whom the sinful world is blessed. Or here's another one: Savior of the nations, come, virgin son, make here thy home. It's that simple confession. He is the Savior of the nations. Or we just sang this morning: Seek the great desire of nations. Ye have seen his natal star. Come and worship Christ, the newborn King. Or here's another example. The great salvation wrought by him, Jehovah has made known. His justice in the nation's sight, he openly has shown. Christmas hymns, Advent hymns, again and again and again make reference to the nations, to the earth, to the world. Come, desire of nations, come fix in us thy humble home. I could keep going. I actually started to look at this last night. I think we've sung between 15 and 20 different hymns over this Advent and Christmas season that describe Jesus as the savior of the earth or the savior of the nations or the savior of all peoples. 
What are those hymns about? What are we singing about? We're singing about how Jesus came to change the nations, to change their religion, to change their culture, to disciple the nations, to rescue the nations, to redeem the nations. Jesus came to fulfill Zephaniah 3.9. God will change the speech of all nations. He will give them pure speech, a pure confession of faith. Christ's name will be confessed in every language under heaven. That's the promise of Zephaniah 3.9. That's what Christmas is about. That is the Father's plan and promise. The Son and the Spirit have come to make good on the Father's promise. We don't see it all yet, but the process is well underway. Christmas and Pentecost guarantee that the nations will be saved. God's jealous love guarantees that the creation will be redeemed, that the nations will be discipled. What would Zephaniah say to us this morning? He would say, believe the words you sing. Believe the words of your Advent and Christmas hymns all year long. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.